Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Friendville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now today, we're going to continue the series that will lead to the philosophical background that drives our professorship today. Uh, you'll recall in episode 63, uh, we reviewed the Lockean and the Rousselian political theories, and today we're actually going to see them in action. Uh, remember, this all started with the birth of natural science and the Thirty Years' War. So if you've missed that, uh, don't forget to watch both episode 62 and 63 before moving ahead with this one. Now today we're going to explore the American Revolution and the French Revolution to see these two philosophies in action. This will eventually help us decipher the background for the crime of the century. So uh, we're going to actually start not just with the American Revolution, but actually with the Seven Years' War. Now, for those of you in Europe, it's the Seven Years' War, but for those of you in the U.S., it's better known as the French-Indian War. This is because the United States, or what was the 13 colonies at that point, was fighting the French and their Indian allies. Now, uh, we've discussed the French uh, dealings with the natives and why that uh, was the case, why the two were allied, but I think more importantly, um, it's important to start with this war because it sets up everything that turns into the American Revolution. You see, as we've discussed last week, nothing just happens. There's no point in history where somebody just wakes up one day and decides this is the way that, that the world is going to go. Rather, it's always because of something else. And the American Revolution was not an idea that was embedded in the minds of even the elites uh, uh, really until after this war. So we're gonna have to set up the, the background for it. There's a couple of really interesting things that happens. We'll briefly touch on Europe, although it's not as important um, to this discussion. But what's great about what happens in the US is it really sets up um, a lot of our founders and their uh, responsibilities to the 13 colonies beforehand. Now, in Europe, the old alliances were England with Austria, and this was because of the French alliance with a nation called Prussia. Again, those in Europe will recognize the name Prussia as the country who would eventually go on to form uh, the modern German state. This is uh, a long ways off from where we're talking, but at this time, uh, Russia, uh, Prussia, I'm sorry, uh, despite being uh, not a very large country uh, geographically, had a very, very strong military and was a really great presence in Germany and in Europe, despite not having the richer lands that the French did or the power of the Habsburgs in Austria. Regardless, uh, this period is really known as the Great Switch, where France actually decided to switch an ally with Austria who wanted to check Prussian power, and Prussia went with the United Kingdom who wanted, well, wanted to get France, as they often did, 
for uh, much of their history up until about the late 19th century. The Austrians had uh, quite a bit, uh, still had power in the Holy Roman Empire and had quite a bit of land in Central Europe, but their ambitions were to dominate Germany itself, though this era of German dualism uh, really was starting to tip in Prussian favor and not so much Austria. Now, this is going to be something that we'll bring up at the very, very end of uh, this show. So I'm going to ask you to keep this in mind that uh, there is such a thing as German dualism going on and territorial changes that happened during this conflict that we're not necessarily going to go over uh, now, but we are going to come back to. Now, in the New World, at some point there was going to be a conflict. You had the French control of Canada, what is modern-day uh, Quebec, and the reason that that part of Canada speaks French. You had Louisiana, which was not just the modern United States state of Louisiana, but went all the way up through Michigan and uh, to parts of Tennessee, and all the way up even um, touching Canada through the, the Great Lakes area. It was a, a very large, spacious uh, colony and really provided the French with a lot of trading in furs and tobacco and uh, obviously cotton in the more southern region closer to Louisiana. But until this point, the New World, uh, a lot of the fights and skirmishes had either been small border wars between the colonies or of, of really varying nations, or it had been uh, uh, fights with the natives. Now, that last one is obvious, but um, there had no been no war that was pretty much exclusively fought in the New World. The French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, was the first to do that, where England and France, uh, their professional armies duked it out uh, over the ocean without so much trying to invade each other, you see. In... Uh, most famously during the Hundred Years' War, uh, England and France fought it uh, on French lands and it was a lot of the armies going back and forth and then obviously uh, later on you had them uh, fighting each other either in Italy or you had the English trying to get under the French uh, uh, naval uh, capabilities by having little skirmishes in the coast of Brittany or into Normandy. and. This is the first time that the two countries that had always been in, at each other's throats uh, really stayed away from trying to invade one another and just fought it on the seas and, and with the colonies. Now the French had a number of forts that went up from uh, the bottom of Louisiana all the way up into Canada which really uh, provided them with a great defensive line. And the uh, English had a great a uh, couple of generals in their uh, employ. Now one of the guys they had was uh, a younger man named uh, George Washington. And he uh, was the owner of an English fort which he constructed himself and chose the location named uh, Fort Necessity. And this is completely, uh, uh, totally ironic in terms of, of the names. Because at the bottom of the hill, at the bottom of a valley, 
a wooded area, basically the enemy is shooting down. And it's always easier, one rule of war, it's always easier to shoot down than it is to shoot up, especially when you kind of musket in a firing line. So yeah, you've got the walls, but unless you're gonna build them 50 feet high, you're not going to eclipse the, the hilltop your enemies are shooting uh, at you from the valley. So they're shooting down into your little fort and the walls are doing nothing and you're getting attacked from all angles. That's not uh, also to mention the fact that the, the Indians are shooting arrows up over the walls and uh, at the, the ramparts at the top. So during the Seven Years' War, George Washington is crushed at Fort Necessity, just dismantled, and the French didn't really want the fort, they just wanted the British out of the area. And it was an easier victory just because the terrain gave them that, that victory. <clears throat> and then uh, when Washington uh, went on the retreat uh, to obviously to regroup, to rearm, uh, and to quarter his troops, uh, the, the Indians, who again were allied with the French, were picking them off, either with arrows or they would use little ambush attacks, and they wouldn't wait for these guys to line up. That was the gentlemanly way of doing warfare. You would meet an army, you would line up, you'd shoot at each other, somebody would lose. That's the gentleman's way. That's not the way that the natives did things over here. If you're standing out in the open in the middle of the woods, they're gonna take one of their battle axes and stick you in the back of the skull because they don't really care about you being a gentleman, they care about winning the war. So the Indians really don't care. They will take their battle axe and they will stick you in the back of the skull because you're standing out in the open and they wanna win. Now, I'm sure to us that seems perfectly reasonable, but to a noble and nobility-minded European, that's not the way you do war. That's not the way it was done, you know, ever. That, that, that's the way that, that we do things before the, uh, before the Romans, you know, before we were enlightened. Well, again, war is about winning. And so what, what this taught Washington, or what it forced them to do was, whenever these little guerrilla attacks would happen, the uh, Indians would, would jump down in front of them and now you've got to go and you've got to run behind a tree and you just got a musket and hopefully a bayonet and you got to fend for yourself. It's pretty much one-on-one. -on -one. And the natives would make this little attack and they wouldn't stick around to see who wins or loses. Then they'd retreat back into the woods. And you could follow them, but you'd probably step on you know booby traps and uh, get, get, get stuck. And end up losing more men than, than is necessary to go after those uh, who, you know, did th th this run and hide maneuver. And this happened to Washington as he retreated uh, back to English territory. And the lessons from this war really kind of turned Washington into somebody who wanted to not only learn, but study things that would be considered a little bit more radical or in this case, you know, going native. So as this war drags on, Washington begins to employ more and more tactics that go away from the typical line infantry. Uh, you know, he would have his men uh, hide down behind kind of a little incline and wait for the enemy to, to sally forth 
and when they get to the top of the hill, they'd fire a musket volley and they'd run straight uh, with their bayonets into the line infantry in front of them. And this, again, not the gentlemanly way to do it, but uh, Washington began to improve as a, as a general. And the terrain, really you could do this in Europe, but the terrain in the United States, and particularly in the Louisiana uh, area, where much of the fight was going on, was suited to this style of warfare, hence the natives were also using it. But in the end, at the end of the seven years, in uh, 1757, war started in 1750, it's decided that the French and the Austrians are on the losing side. Now Prussia, as we had mentioned, uh, gets a little, uh, if you look at the old maps, it's basically a little kick out on the bottom, almost forms a leg in Prussia, and it's called uh, Silesia. That is a Czech-German region, and pretty much a trophy for the Prussians. It was a Austrian land for quite a while, and the capture of this land by the Prussians signaled the end of Austrian dominance in Europe. It codified what had already been true, that Prussia was going to be the master, at least of the North Germans. It was the Protestant power, it was the military power, it was a shift, and a shift toward in the Germanic part of Europe, it was a shift towards the power base in Berlin instead of Vienna. Now the other thing that the Seven Years' War really kind of solidified over here was the feeling that the colonies could not only fend for themselves, but the victory, and for those involved, it felt as though they won the victory for the Americas, for the 13 colonies. They didn't consider, it, it was as if they didn't consider themselves British. They didn't win it for the crown, they won it for themselves. They won it so they wouldn't be kicked off of their land. Now the French, the French lost Louisiana, the French lost Canada, the French lost most of their territory in the New World as the result of this treaty. In addition, they had to pay war reparations to uh, Prussia and the United Kingdom and their allies. And at this time, France, uh, Louis XIV had died, Louis XV was in charge, and now this was a point that I wanted to make later, but I think uh, now is the time. King Louis XIV, as we mentioned in the last episode, was perhaps the greatest king in the history of kings. Louis XV didn't know what he was doing. He was inherited from his father, the state of France. Now, I will admit, uh, Louis XIV did die with some debt, uh, national debt. He did die with an exhausted military force. They had won in the Spanish War of uh, Succession and successfully put a noble from their house on the Spanish throne. So they did control, from a family standpoint, they did control Spain. 
but at the same time, uh, uh, you would have had to have a statesman that was experienced in the way that Louis XIV was experienced to be able to maneuver yourself out of this situation. It wasn't an impossible situation, but it wasn't a great situation in 1715. But if we fast forward to the 1750s, Louis XV is older. He is not necessarily aloof, but he's certainly more interested in his personal glory than in French glory. He enjoys having himself painted, not his body, but his portrait. And he really enjoys the idea of having the French dominate not only the seas, but dominate trade. Now, two things in this time period are very, very important to dominating the ocean and dominating the trade routes. And that's colonies and that's ships. So before the Seven Years' War, uh, Louis had really focused on building the French Navy and naval capacity uh, to a point where he could attempt to challenge the Royal Navy. Now, it never got anywhere close. But what it did do was spend a lot of money, a lot of money that ended up at the bottom of the ocean when they fought the, the English Navy uh, during the Seven Years' War. In addition, Louis XV now had to repay his war debts from the Seven Years' War without any colonies to tax. Now, we're going to leave France here in 1757, but you got a little bit of a aloof king who was aging, who has just been handed one of the worst defeats in terms of territorial loss uh, in recent French memory. So the people are a little bit agitated. The French military doesn't seem as glorious as it did under his father. And that's not really something you want as a king. Now, we're going to move back over to uh, the English and the United Kingdom, and we're going to stay here for a little bit. Uh, this also includes the 13 colonies, and the English also have debt from this war. One thing that has never and will never change about warfare is that it's expensive in both manpower and money. Well, the English have Canada, have Louisiana, have the 13 colonies, and dominate the seas, complete opposite from Louis XV. They still have debt trouble. Well, they had raised uh, taxes to pay for, uh, just about a generation ago, to pay for the War of Spanish, uh, Spanish Succession. And now they had also been fighting uh, in India and began to secure for themselves uh, small little footholds in what would later become the crown, uh, the jewel in the crown of the English Commonwealth. Regardless, uh, King George did not want to raise taxes on his own people. This would have been, as he felt and as his advisors in Parliament felt, this would have been not necessarily disastrous, but he could cause bread shortages. He didn't want to strain the people. Well, they argued. The, English, the, the 13 colonies, they fought for this war. They did the fighting. It's their responsibility. They should pay the taxes. Well, one of the ways to tax them, in addition to being a, a direct tax, 
was to raise tariffs, namely on tea imports and uh, linen or cotton shirt imports. And the way that that would work is the cotton would come from the 13 colonies, get shipped to England, be created and made into uh, a nice shirt, and then shipped back to uh, Boston or New York or wherever, and then be charged double, even though if it would, was made in the 13 colonies, the shirt could have been made for much cheaper and therefore sold much cheaper. But this isn't the way the English saw it. And this was how they made money, a lot of money, from their colonies. Now, this angers the colonists. And so there are numerous petitions between the year of about 1763 or so until about 1770, 1771, where there are a number of people, uh, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, who try their hardest to petition the English government to lower their taxes, lower their tariffs let us control our property, as John Locke would have said. Let us, as Englishmen, have a right to our property. And sometimes they would invoke the Magna Carta, which, again, we've discussed this on the Connecting the Dots podcast. Now, the Founding Fathers, this, these pleas really felt on deaf ears. The founders had begun to see themselves as Americans and not Englishmen. And not just them, but it had gotten down into the people where now their costs have gone up, their economy is starting to suffer. They don't want the English tariffs. And so when the Sons of Liberty, essentially underground uh, uh, meeting places, were created, the idea wasn't to immediately have a call to arms against the United Kingdom. In fact, the idea was to petition the English to let off. Now, you have a, a, a number of succeeding events the Boston Tea Party, the Boston Massacre, for example, where the English seemed to respond in the worst ways. Now, these tariffs were necessary to pay for the war debts and to fund the English Navy, and the English argued that the colonies needed the protection from the English troops against natives and Frenchmen who hadn't left and therefore tar tariffs and taxation needed to be levied on the colonists to pay for it. And the colonists basically said, we can defend ourselves. We proved it in the Seven Years' War. We can fight a war against a professional army and against guerrilla tactics. We could raise our own militia. We don't need your troops. They're, not, they're nice to have, but we don't need them. We can rule ourselves. Now you can begin to see when this split happens that 
the ideal vision of the United Kingdom and the ideal vision of the 13 colonies was much different, where the idea of a people who control their own destiny, a people who have the right to life, liberty, and property begins to take hold. Now, we went over Lockean theory, and this heavily influenced the likes of Alexander Hamilton and uh, Thomas Jefferson. And they truly believed the, though obviously Hamilton was more of an elitist, they truly believed that the common man and themselves, that their labor meant something, that their work meant something, that they were entitled to their property, that no government could come in and tax them unjustly. And by doing so, deprive them of those rights that were given to them, not by the kingdom, but by God. Thomas Paine even famously wrote that a mother would not devour her own children. But the English, they didn't see it this way. The English, again, wanted to dominate the seas and wanted to dominate trade. They wanted a world which they could control. And they were not tyrannical in the sense that they had a parliamentary system. They had a relatively, for the time, relatively free people. Yet the Englishmen didn't treat the colonies the same way they treated themselves. And so the argument that would come from the colonists was that the, they, they were on equal footing. Not because of any citizenship, but because they had the dignity of being a human being. And of course they also argued that you know we're still part of the United Kingdom, though we're in a colony, we are still men who were naturalized Englishmen and therefore do the rights that Englishmen are due. This doesn't work. The English keep tariffs where they are or they raise them. This costs the colonies more and more and eventually gets to the point where they feel as though the English are gearing up for something. Thomas Paine in his famous give me liberty or give me death speech said There are ships in the harbor and there are chains on the streets of Boston that their clanking may be heard on the plains. These are the weapons that kings use as a last resort. Does England have any other enemies in this side of the world? The answer is no. They can be for us. They can be for no other. Now the English had no interest in getting rid of these terrorists, but they did have an interest in making sure that these colonists stay quiet and under the rule of English law. Therefore, the English decided that they were going to quarter troops in our homes. They decided that they were going to impose court curfews. They were going to give colonial governors the right to 
go after these people who were talking about independence for the 13 colonies. And the Declaration of Independence was not done out of rebellion, but out of a last resort. The call to arms was because the English had escalated this to a point where you could not go back. Now there is, unfortunately, a school of thought uh, today in the U.S. That, that suggests that the Founding Fathers were just like the Islamic terrorists of today, that they tried to use terror tactics to get what they wanted politically. Now I don't know the last time that an Afghani terrorist petitioned the U.S. government to change itself to become the Islamic States of America. They usually go for chopping half heads first. And if you can find me evidence that George Washington himself beheaded people and did it purely for religious reasons, you might have a point. The Founding Fathers did not want to fight. They didn't even necessarily at first want to be independent. But they have no choice. Again, as Thomas Paine said, our brothers are already in the field. Why do we stand here idle? Because there simply was no other choice. And the reason they picked George Washington was because of his experience in this Seven Years' War. And Washington knew that as long as, so long as he kept the Continental Army alive, the English would run out of money or their people would run out of patience. That was not similar to what they had used uh, for the French, but it was something that they had learned and picked up from the Seven Years' War that you didn't have to fight in a battle line, that the militia was good enough to take on the professional English troops. Now I hope you know who won the American War of Independence. But so many of us don't understand that the first government that was created here was known as the Articles of Confederation. And not only was the Confederation one of the weakest federal governments uh, created, namely due to the fact that it could not tax the people in any sort of way. Now this is due to, I'm sure the founders uh, now gaining their independence from England had the ability to set up their own government and so they were still a little sore over the obvious tariff and taxation issues. This hurt the ability to create an army. A government needs to raise money. Because remember, we're going with Lockean principles here. The government has three major responsibilities. To protect the nation with an army, to enforce contracts, to make sure the mail runs on time. Now how's it going to do any of that if it doesn't have any money? Also, the Articles of Confederation gave so much power to the states, the two of them were bickering with each other that, that if Massachusetts wanted to annex Rhode Island because it was small, that, that it could. 
and that if any rebellion happened against this new government, it would be up to the states themselves to raise a militia to defend themselves. So taking Lockeanism to its logical extreme where it's near anarchy doesn't work. Now I'm not saying that the Articles of Confederation was, was anarchy, but it looks nothing like our system of today. Uh, the states had so much power, it didn't even feel like they were part of a cohesive system. We couldn't pay our veterans from the Revolutionary War who fought so hard for their independence. There was not a great control on the monetary system. The government itself was inefficient. So in 1789, there was, in 1788 started, there was a new bill written, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States. This is what, in some respects, we're based on today. That the federal government does have the right to taxation, but the states are sovereign, that they are united to defend themselves, but have the right to determine their own destiny. And that freedom extends to their civilians. To give the people what the English would not, the right to, as they see fit, control their own destiny, to rise through the social ranks as they could. But there was also another thing happening in 1789 that was far different. It was another revolution. See, over in France, King Louis XV had died. King Louis XVI had taken control as it was uh, passed down through his family. King Louis XV had not done a very good job at handling the crisis, although what could he do? He had no colonies to raise tariffs on. He couldn't tax under French law, he couldn't tax the nobility, and if he taxed the church, the Catholics would have raised hell. No pun intended. And the only logical thing left to do, you need money, and there's only one place to get money, and that's from the common man. So taxes went way up. This meant that the common man had little money to buy necessities. Not that they already had a whole lot, but what they did have was, in many cases, taken by the government. This created a populace that was antagonistic towards the king. King Louis XV dies, and King Louis XVI comes to the throne. And now, unlike his grandfather, Louis XIV, uh, the XVI is aloof, doesn't really want to be king, he just wants to sail his little boats and, and make little paper models and he's just not interested in being king and not, not a very good statesman. He really kind of wants the, the, to delegate, he wants to delegate his responsibilities. Now in many cases he is more of the philosopher type, he will go to the fancy plays and he will congregate with the nobility. He's definitely a far, far away from being a, a 
man of the people. And his wife, who was married from uh, Austrian descent, much, much different. She did not care about the common man. King Louis XVI, and of course we know that history is written by the victor, and it's hard to write history when your head gets chopped off, but Louis XVI, for all of the animosity that's directed at him uh, and how we understand the French Revolution, King Louis XVI did not hate his own people. He simply wasn't interested in ruling them. And as a result, it became unruly. His wife didn't care about him. She uh, famously, when there were bread shortages in Paris and people were starving, uh, somebody asked her to give a statement. Her statement was basically, let them eat cake. Which is as if they had enough money for bread. Now they're gonna eat cake, which at that time was expensive and this noble dessert. What followed in the wake of the French Revolution, which was much more heavily inspired by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In fact, the French actually, in their constitution, in the first French Republic, they essentially said that unless society tells us differently, everybody's equal. And this accounted mostly socially. Now, it didn't have to do necessarily with uh, economics or income, but the idea was to get rid of the nobility, to have an equal social standing, unless essentially society deemed someone to be more necessary. So the Rousseauian idea that, that laws enforce the will of the people quickly turned into laws that restricted the people because if you're going to forcibly move someone down in society, no, notably the nobility in this case, you're going to have to impose that will on people who don't accept it. So mass rioting broke out in France and what was once a very prosperous state had suddenly become very destabled. And a man named, uh, a lawyer, named uh, Rose Pierre, rose to power. To compare him to Stalin is silly, but to compare his reign of terror to the great purchase of the Soviet Union is not. You could be beheaded for having a deck of cards that had uh, a king in the, in the stack. They created their own calendar, they created their own deck of cards. You could be beheaded if you put too many omelets or too many eggs in your omelet because only a noble would put that many eggs in their omelet. So the French Revolution quickly turned into tyranny and Robespierre ironically ended up having his head chopped off because the people had enough of it and it led to the rise of probably the greatest general in history, Napoleon Bonaparte. Now we're not going to talk about Napoleon too much other than the fact that through the Napoleonic Wars of the late late 1700s and early 1800s the idea, this revolutionary idea that government exists to 
recognize and protect the rights that are already given to man by God and to enforce the will of the people and the Rousseauian thought began to spread through force by Napoleon. But these ideas were so unique and so liberating to many of these populaces that had lived in the Germanic kingdoms under princes and dukes, this became a centerpiece for later. And we're going to get to that uh, in next week's episode. But here's what we can learn from all of this. If you go too far to the right, many people will say you get Nazism. Uh, that's not true. That's more socialism, and that's a different topic for a different day. You get closer and closer to anarchy because uh, John Locke sits on the right. And the linchpin of the entire theory is that you have the right to determine your future. However, you're restricted by the social contract and by the necessity of government. But you take that to the logical extreme and you say, well, we all have the right to do whatever we want. We don't even need a government. You get anarchism. Now, the United States has never had that, but through the Articles of Confederation, we can see that the state has the right to taxation, though not unjust taxation. And the government, in order to perform its duties, needs to levy that tax. That's what we're paying into. That's why we pay taxes, is to acknowledge that we all need to defend each other. Now Rousseau, who sits on the left, you take him to the logical extreme, who argues that the will of the people must be enforced by the government, it becomes a, a, a loop in which if the people are imposing a will, there must be a way to determine that will, and that usually comes down from the elites. So you still have a top-down society, much like the kings of old, Yet this time they declare that for the good of the people that they will perform some sort of act. That the government quickly becomes overbearing and overreaching and ignores the rights of the man of man and the individual in order to enforce the majority will and what the majority of people believe. So you take both to their extremes and they don't work. But through the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, which when you throw in a little bit of Baron Montesquieu and bring Locke a little closer to the center, not quite, still onto the right, and bring in the Rousseauian idea of the social contract, you get a system that allows for the most amount of personal liberty while still offering protection. That zenith in political thought an ideology was met by the United States in 1789. Now we weren't perfect. As you know, the U.S. had slaves, women couldn't vote. But we created a document that was so strong that it allowed for those things to happen a hundred years after it was created. That we could build to that. We could take a society that was not yet in the Enlightenment, that is a general populace. We 
were not enlightened. Only the elites, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, they were enlightened. The general run of people were not. Some of them weren't even literate, a lot of them. We took that culture and that society, put in a government that let people determine the way their lives were going to go, and we created an economy and a country that eventually surpassed and eventually dominated the world. That is not something to be taken lightly. Yet, we do. We take it lightly. We assume that, that every heart yearns for the freedom that we have. Europe would not even know the power of its own enlightenment had it not been for Napoleon conquering all the way to Russia. Now as we wrap this up, there's also one thing before we move on to next week that we need to get straight here, that Europe is politically left of the United States. We, we will never see, except for England, we will never see a Lockean country in Europe. The Germanys are much more concerned with Rousseauianism. The French, certainly, who wrote an entire document and created a whole system of government around it. They believe in enforcing the will of the people. And the U.S. is slightly different. We believe in individual liberty. And the rights of the individual trump those of the community. And the only place that these work hand in hand is here in the United Kingdom. But Europe after 1815, after the fall of Napoleon for the second time, needed to create for itself a balance of power. And this was known as the Congress of Vienna. And we're going to talk about the Congress of Vienna next week. And we're going to go into a little bit of its background and how it changed the map in Europe. And we're going to talk about uh, one of my... Let's face it, the man I hate the most in the history of mankind, we're going to talk about Karl Marx and his impact, philosophy, and the reason his philosophy was even able to get started in Europe. But don't worry, we're also going to talk about American writers. We're going to talk about the ability of the American ethos to penetrate into our literature and create something truly unique, a truly a, a academic and artful experience that, that, that pushes the boundaries of our own government, culture, and society. Now all of this is starting to culminate in what will become the crime of the century. <laughs>